Good morning, 1548 Heights members and friends online and in person. Grace and peace to you in abundance. I know I say that every week, but it's like an invocation, just as I say the benediction every week. It just kind of, you know, it's a, it's a sort of uh, litur- liturgical element. But it's good to see you all on this sweltering, cauldron-like, apocalyptic heat of Houston. How many of you are ready for this to end? No? I am not. Do you know why? Because it has increased my gratitude tremendously for air condition. Yes, that's right. See, God can work through all circumstances in that way. So anyway, it's good to see you today. At 1548 Heights, our mission is to be a transforming church, changing lives for God and for good in the world as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. Spiritual transformation is the process of being formed into the image of Jesus. Over time, in community, in the context of disciplines and rhythms and practices that allow God to shape us into His Son's image, for God's glory, for the abundance of our own lives, and for the sake of the world. I'm preaching another standalone message today. I figure it in the kind of dog days of summer, I would gather up some breadcrumbs that I've been putting aside for ideas and topics on which to preach. I actually save those on my phone, and I go through them from time to time and say, you know, is is this a good time to pull that into a message? And I had saved this bit of Scripture called, Hardened by the Deceitfulness of Sin. I must have read it in during my Bible reading or something, and I just saved it, and uh, I'm I'm intrigued by that, and I do believe that sin is deceitful. That's the essence of sin. It, it, It makes promises it can't keep, and I also believe there is a hardening that takes place in our hearts as we participate in sin that we are often unaware of, but over time hardens our hearts to God. And so I decided to preach on that. But when I went to the context, <laughs> Hebrews 3, uh, it, it wasn't quite as fulsome as I thought it would be. I wanted to just preach on the, heart, the deceitfulness of sin in general. But this has a very specific context. And the number one rule for preachers is what? And always preach the Scripture in context. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 15 today. So just a little quick setup for Hebrews. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament that uh, after about 200 years circulating among the Christian community was given the name Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. We don't know who the particular recipients are. We don't know the date on which it was written, we don't even know the specific circumstances uh, in which it was written. But it is a rich, deep, deep look at life in Jesus Christ. And it is probably written to a community of perhaps mostly Jewish Christians who are weary and discouraged And they apparently are considering just sort of drifting back to the Jewish community, the synagogue, what have you, and and stepping back from this radical commitment to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the author of Hebrews 
compares them to Israelites in the wilderness. Particularly, he quotes from Psalm 95 in the passage we're going to look at today, verse 7 through 11, an incident at Meribah where there is no water and a group of the Israelites complains and says, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt, Moses? We just want to go back. How can you ask us to move towards some promised land when we're not even able to have water? And it was noted, it was called sort of the rebellion. Any Jewish person would recognize Meribah as that time of rebellion against God. And so with all that in mind, let's read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Listen to the word of God. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Thanks be to God for His Word and for His living Word, Jesus Christ. There's an outline provided in your bulletin. If you find that helpful to follow along, I encourage you to do that. There's a place you can fill in blanks or write notes. But let's set the table. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group for whom the price of Christian discipleship is beginning to outweigh its prize. The price of Christian discipleship is beginning to outweigh its prize. This is a direct quote from my friend, the late scholar Edward Fudge, friends of some of you in here who have connections to Bering Drive Church, and I understand his sweet wife Sarah Faye is watching today, maybe even his daughter Melanie, I don't know. But that's an arresting phrase, isn't it? The prize is being outweighed by the price. We understand this kind of language. You could call it cost-benefit. We do this all the time. We do a quick cost-benefit analysis. Should I do this? Well, it'll take this much effort. Should I do it? Yes or no? And we do that all the time. And we do it with major areas of life, too. And what is this price for this group of Jewish Christians? Well, apparently... They have paid the price of some social dislocation by, by distancing themselves from the Jewish community. They paid the price of lost business relationships, of harassment, maybe even of overt persecution. Though the author says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. What is their prize? What is their prize? What is it to make it worth the price. Well, that is what the author is writing to them about, to convince them to stay and to continue and to persevere. And so we have this wonderful, the, the writer of Hebrews, by the way, uses the most uh, sophisticated Greek in all of the New Testament. Very, very learned person. He says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. 
And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember the hostility that he faced so that you do not lose heart and your souls grow weary. Oh, that phrase, souls grow weary. So he's writing to convince them that the prize is worth the price. Now, this whole calculation of feeling weary and soul, this is a reality for many Christians. This is a reality for many Christians. The, the price we pay, if you will, of discipleship, which I would equate with active faith or active participation in the church, at times it can feel like, man, it's really outweighing whatever I'm supposed to get out of this. You know, we're in a time now where everything I read says trust in institutions is decreasing significantly. People just don't trust institutions and they see the church as an institution. And there's a weariness with church going, if you will. And the pandemic and people being, uh, getting in the habit of worshiping online virtually has led many to just default to that and some not at all. And so many Christians are making this calculation. Is it worth the price? And the price is worship. Bible study, volunteering, giving, praying, being part of the institution. What is the prize? <laughs> what is the prize? After all, it's not a salvation I issue, is it? But here's an interesting thing. The writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, who's not writing in our sort of easy-going, casual Christian time, does see it as a matter of salvation. He says, do not turn away from the living God. And this word for turn away, apiste me, is the word from which we get apostate. And it is used in non-religious contexts to describe how soldiers desert their post, desert their position. And so, the writer of Hebrews takes a very hard look at this, this idea of just leaving, turning away. Well, let's look at this key phrase that I told you about, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin, for the author of Hebrews in this context, means turning back, turning away, going back to Egypt, dropping out. In, in this context, he's saying, uh, don't, don't be deceived by that sin. Harden, he, he uses a word from which we get sclerosis, as in arterial sclerosis, you know. It will harden your heart. And deceitfulness, he uses a very common word, but interesting, it's used in the parable of the sower in Mark 4 to describe how the seed falls on thorny soil, but the deceit of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the world, and it yields nothing. What is this deceit of drifting away from active participation in the church? 
Thomas Long in his commentary says, Sin is depicted here as a liar, whispering in the ears of the church. This play is going nowhere. God's drama is the theater of the absurd without purpose or meaning. Don't kid yourself. All the pain and sacrifice and suffering is a waste. You can do better than this sad melodrama. Write your own play. Write your own play. What does the author say in response to this? Make this note. The author urges the group to urge each other to hold fast their confidence. He urges them to urge each other to hold fast their confidence. The word for urge here is a word that very broad. It could mean to encourage, uh, to cajole. It could mean to urge, to demand, to command. He says, take it upon yourselves to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some in chapter 10. And he says, hold fast their confidence. there's There's a great... Emphasis on confidence in Hebrews. He says, he says in chapter 10, 19, he says, uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. He urges the the Christians to hold on to that confidence that they've been taught to have. This week I uh, read an article by, or blog by Caitlin Beattie. Let's see the slide here. I, I'd never heard of her. She writes a blog called The Beattie Beat. Yeah, that's pretty catchy, isn't it? Here's some information where you can find it. I do want you to go to this and read it. Uh, she studied theology at Oxford and was the managing editor of Christianity Today. She's now the editorial director of Brazos Press. She's, she's a real deal. And she said, why I still go to church on Sundays. And man, it was good. She begins by acknowledging how many people have been wounded by the church and even abused by the church. And she makes it clear, I make no judgment on your decision to drop out. And she thanks God for the healthy leaders and churches she has been a part of. And I want to say amen to that because our leaders here are healthy. They're not going to wound you. And that is something which is easy to overlook. And she offers four primary reasons why she has chosen to continue to stay in the church. And the first is, she says, because I'm bad at remembering how to be a Christian. I love that. Being a Christian is not our default behavior. It's not just kind of where we go. No. And she says, I'm bad at that. She says, my location in human history makes it difficult to live as if Jesus is Lord because my location tells me that I am actually Lord. 
in a world of endless choice and shockingly effective Instagram ads, I am encouraged to spend my time and energy and money on getting what I want when I want, then telling myself that it's all self-care. <laughs> the way I like to put it is, how am I ever going to learn to be long-suffering like Jesus if I don't have to suffer church people, right? Okay? She says, discipleship is about becoming people who desire the kingdom. And the way I become a person who desires the kingdom of God is by allowing the Christian liturgy to reshape my heart's desires week in and week out. The liturgy at the church I attend includes corporate singing, prayers for the world and our neighbors, a time of confession, the reading of Scripture, preaching, and the Eucharist. It's a beautiful time. It reorients my loves. I can't actually live as if Jesus is Lord on my own willpower because the alternate cultural liturgies are incredibly powerful. I need to be reshaped every week. I remember many years ago hearing an African-American preacher say, all week my people hear lies, and I've got one hour to tell them the truth and remind them of the truth. She says, second, I continue to be a part of the church because going to brunch with friends afterwards is good for my health. <laughs> I like this too. But beneath the cheekiness, she's pointing to a reality. She quotes the social uh, sociologist or social psychologist, I can't remember, Robert Putnam, who wrote the great book Bowling Alone, who says, listen, your chances of dying in the next 12 months are cut in half by joining just one group. Whoa! Forget about how you're eating. Join a group. Not really. Discussing their film, Join or Die, Pete and Rebecca Davis note that, listen, religious spaces provide half of all social capital in the United States. Half of all social capital. Beattie says the communal dimensions of the Christian life aren't incidental or nice add-ons. They are a safety net and a tangible sign of God's grace because we can't be Christians alone. And we're not meant to be alone. Genesis 1 and 2. She says she continues to be a part of the church because, listen, church includes people who aren't like me. She quotes Putnam again, who talks about two kinds of social capital. The first is called bonding, and the second, bridging. Bonding is where we're with people like ourselves, and we, it, we enjoy that. It, it, it strengthens us. It, it, it revitalizes us. Yes, we share these beliefs and assumptions and values. Bridging is when we are people who are not like ourselves, when we are with people not like ourselves, and we are challenged to get to know their values, their perspectives, their context, and that blesses both of us uh, in the end. And bonding and bridging are both very important parts of social capital. Now listen, B. 
Beattie says, The wild, even scandalous idea for the body of Christ is that it is called to be both, a place of both bonding and bridging. It is called to be a place where people from all nations and tribes, all races and languages, Revelation 7 verse 9, now see each other as family because of Jesus. The vision for the church was radical from its inception, and it's radical today. Make this note, friend. God's redemptive drama includes us. Here you go, David. Includes us. We're recipients of that. We receive that and needs us as participants. We are both recipients and participants. And all, if all we want to do is receive it, then somehow we are standing at the side of the stage, if you will, while God's redemptive drama is going on and calls us into the play. Thomas Long says, Our actions of devotion, observance, love are being gathered up by God for His purposes. Friends, they are not in vain. (laughs) Just because we can't see how they contribute to some prize doesn't mean they are not. God gathers them up and uses them for his purposes. Mike Glenn is a is a pastor, senior pastor of a little church in Nashville called Brentwood Baptist Church with nine campuses. <laughs> but at any rate, he's been preaching there for 32 years, and he's about to retire because he wants to, well, he's, you know, he's old. He's about my age, but at any rate, uh, he wants to pour himself into younger ministers because there's so much discouragement out there. But he wrote a blog uh, similar about, you know, why it's worth being part of the church if you're a Christian. And he starts by saying, look, let's acknowledge something. Church can be boring. Church can be boring. Uh, and off, he says, after all the talking in church, what's different? Few of our people are ever challenged to do something great for God. They're never called to attempt the impossible. That's on us as leaders. We ask them to come and sit. Most of our church members are bored. Thank you for not saying amen. But look, let's just get that out on the table. Church can be boring. He says, there's sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm bored. You know, I look out sometimes preaching and I see people... It's almost always men, their head back, mouth open, eyes closed. And, you know, I I try to be a positive thinker. I I say, man, Soper, they're in awe. They're in awe just looking up at the heavens. But you know what? Church can be boring. Maybe some of you are experiencing that now. But he continues, and I'll call this delusion. He says, why do so many of us who claim to be Christians never or seldom attend church? I know everyone has their reasons, but here's the hard truth. Jesus loved the church. He gave his life for the church. Jesus considers the church to be his bride. And then his drop the mic sentence. 
I don't care how close you are to Jesus, you can't tell him his wife is ugly. If we love Jesus, then we love his church. If you don't love the church, then there's reason to question if you love Jesus. We go to church because the church needs us. We don't go to church for what we get out of it. I can't find anywhere in scriptures where it says that we will get something every time we show up. I can show you a lot of passages that talk about what we are to bring when we come to worship. Friends, there is a price. There is a price to being an active Christian, an active part of the body of Christ, the church. There is. There just is. There's effort. There's long-suffering. There's sacrifice. There's all the little inanities and inconveniences that come with being part of a community of people striving to become something. I tell you with all of my heart, the prize is worth the price. The prize is worth the price. That, that in Jesus Christ, who, who, who died for us, the local church is the body of Christ. The local church is the hope of the world. God gathers up our efforts and uses them redemptively for his purpose. This is why we say about spiritual transformation that it's for God's glory and for the abundance of our own lives and for the sake of the world. We're having a luncheon today called Welcome to 1548 Heights about covenant membership for people who have been worshiping here for a while. It's closed. If you didn't RSVP, we'll get you the next time. Don't drift down there and start eating food, okay? But we've got a full a full room, and I praise God for that. But we love you and care for you too much to say, oh, just come in and drift in whenever you want, you know. No, no, no. No, we want you to be a part of something magnificent, the body of Christ in the world on mission, calling one another to deeper lives, to more of, of Christ in us, uh, the hope of glory. Oh, it's worth it. I'm telling you, it's worth it. I think I'm finished. God gathers up our efforts. He does. He does. He gathers up our efforts and He uses them. He really does. Let's pray together. Thank you so much, Lord. We need to be admonished sometimes and reminded and urged and provoked to remember the prize both at the end of our lives of life with you and the prize in all the different ways that we are enlarged and grown and deepened and loved and given greater capacity to serve and and be less in ourselves by being part of the body of Christ Lord may every effort we make be used by you for your glory for the abundance of our own lives and for the sake of the world name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.